Please stay tuned for important disclosure information at the conclusion of this episode. Welcome to the Investing Insights Podcast from Morningstar. This week, we're going to dive into part two of your 2022 mid-year portfolio checkup. Please check out part one if you missed the previous episode. Today, Morningstar's Director of Personal Finance, Christine Benz, explains how to recession-proof your portfolio, guard it against inflation, and use tax strategies during a bear market. Let's get started with your 2022 Mid-Year Portfolio Checkup, Part 2. Now I want to talk about something that has only recently been in the headlines, which is the idea of recession or a softening economy, if not a full-blown recession. So I want to talk about the fundamental underpinnings of recession, why we've been hearing more recessionary talk recently. And the key reason is that there's concern that if the Fed continues to act aggressively, which I think there's widespread agreement that they should act aggressively to stamp out inflation, they act too aggressively, they could overshoot and inadvertently push the economy into a recession or at least slow it down dramatically. So that's the fundamental underpinning for why we've been hearing about recession more and more in terms of the headlines. The quantitative expression of recession and why economists are thinking about recession is what's depicted here on the yield curve. So I'll just describe what we're looking at, starting with that green line on the screen. This was the yield curve through the end of the first quarter of 2021. And this is kind of a normally shaped yield curve. The basic idea is that the shorter term investors, the ones who are owning two-year bonds and three-year bonds, they're getting paid less in terms of their yields for their bonds than the investors who are are assuming all that interest rate risk and holding 20 and 30 year bonds. Those people are getting paid more for the risk that they're assuming. One thing that we've been seeing this year in terms of this yield curve is a little bit of flattening. So long-term bond holders are saying, well, you know what? You may not need to pay me quite as much because I think that yields will actually be going down. And this yield curve, the flattening yield curve, and certainly what's called an inverted yield curve, where the short-term bondholders are actually getting paid more to hold their bonds than are the long-term bondholders, this has historically been a really good predictor of recessions. So this is what has sent uh, market watchers kind of chattering about potential recession, this concern that the yield curve is exhibiting this flattening pattern, which is indicating that some bond market participants are expecting some economic weakness. They're expecting that before long, the Fed actually may be stepping off the break with res- breaks with respect to interest rates. They may be lowering interest rates, which would make those long-term bonds, even though their yields aren't high in absolute terms, that would make them worth more than newer bonds that might come online with lower yields attached to them. So just food for thought. But nothing to get carried away with with respect to your portfolio, but something to keep in the back of your mind as you're thinking about repositioning. And the really tricky part of this recessionary talk is that the categories, the hardest hit categories, some of them, especially in the fixed income space, are the things that you want in your portfolio in a recessionary environment. So high quality bonds tend to be very, very good performers in recessionary environments, in part because recessionary environments typically spur a flight to quality and high quality bonds 
are one of the key high quality investments that investors look to, but also because interest rates often decline in recessionary periods, which makes high quality bonds worth more. It elevates high quality bond prices. So I think a key thing to think about as you're thinking about your portfolio is even as you might be inclined to throw bonds overboard, given how poor their performance has been in the first half of 2022, they tend to be good ballast for equities in some sort of an economic weakness or recessionary environment. So I would say beware of dr drastic all or nothing measures with respect to your fixed income exposure in your portfolio. You probably want to maintain some exposure to high quality bonds to protect you in a recessionary scenario. On the equity side, uh, this is another inter interesting and perhaps a, a little bit counterintuitive thing. Some of the areas that have held up best in 2022, so commodities, energies, investments, could actually underperform in a period of slack economic growth, which I think is an argument for not loading the boat with them, even though their performance has has been really great and they've probably held your portfolio aloft to the extent that you've had them in your portfolio, you want to be careful about overdoing them because of their sensitivity to the economic environment. On the other hand, when we think about categories that tend to hold up well in recessionary environments, healthcare stocks tend to do well in such a period. Consumer staple stocks also hold up well. Really anything that consumers will continue to buy regardless of what's going on in, in the economy. So that's paper towels, that's drugs that people need to take. Those tend to be quite recession resistant. They're things that you'd want to maintain ongoing exposure in your portfolio to. Now I want to talk about inflation. Inflation has certainly been hard to ignore. Uh, we've seen inflation rise really sharply over the past year. And this has been a real turnabout. We talked earlier on about how the turnabout in interest rates has upended what had been kind of a longstanding regime. The sell-off in stocks had uh, has upended what had been a really comfy period for equity holders, similar with inflation, where I think many of us had gotten somewhat complacent about inflation. It had sort of plotted along at kind of a 2%, even sub 2% uh, sort of zone for many years. Recently, as you all know, the inflation rate has jumped up very dramatically into the 8% range as of its most recent reading. So this complicates planning. I, I would argue that it particularly complicates planning for older adults who are drawing from, from their portfolios. So um, the reason that it's worrisome for older adults is that older adults typically are drawing a percentage of their living expenses from their portfolios, and they're also typically holding safer investments in their portfolios. They may hold some stocks, but they are also holding some fixed rate investments. They're holding bonds. They're holding cash. And unless you go out of your way to add inflation-protected bonds, the payments you receive from those fixed rate investments are not automatically inflation-adjusted. So I think it's worthwhile to think about 
your personal inflation situation as a starting point for thinking about how worried you should be about inflation. So I like the idea of looking on your personal spending, looking at your pattern over the past year or the past several years to think about what your personal spending rate is and in turn your personal inflation rate. I've written about this topic before. I created a little kind of calculator to plug in your own spending and your own um, inflation calculation to come out with a, an, a customized inflation rate. And I also always have to credit this concept to Jason Zweig because probably 10 years ago, he wrote about the importance of not just taking CPI and running with it, but instead using kind of a personalized inflation rate. So I think that's the starting point for this process for customizing your inflation rate. You may find that your personal inflation rate is higher than CPI, but if you're someone who doesn't drive a lot, for example, you may find that your personal inflation rate is actually a little bit lower. So, so run the numbers on that. And then the next step is to look at your sources of cash flow, your sources of income. So some people find themselves in the position of being at least somewhat insulated against inflation. So a good example would be people who are earning paychecks and eligible for cost of living adjustments in those paychecks. Their increases may not make them whole with respect to inflation. So if inflation's up 9% this year, not everyone's getting a 9% raise this year. But generally speaking, employers have been attuned to the fact that inflation has been higher and they have been given giving employees a raise. People who are on Social Security are also getting an adjustment. So Social Security recipients received a 6% inflation adjustment for 2022. So for retirees who are taking a big share of their income needs from Social Security, they're at least somewhat protected from the standpoint of inflation. And then people who receive government pensions typically receive nice cost of living adjustments to account for inflation. These are the groups who are at least somewhat insulated from inflation. In terms of who's not in insulated, well, I mentioned people who are earning interest, who have a lot of their portfolios in fixed rate investments, who have a lot of their assets in cash, who have a lot of their assets in bonds. Those interest rate payments that you receive from the bonds are not automatically inflation adjusted. If you just hunker down in a money market fund, for example, for your whole retirement account, when inflation flares up as it has recently, it will a hole in the payouts from your portfolio. Private corporate pensions aren't typically inflation adjusted either. So if you're someone, when you look at your retirement plan, a big share of your income is going to be coming from a pension. Well, ask some questions about whether any inflation adjustments are in, in play. Oftentimes that's not the case. So you'd want to make sure that you're taking steps to insulate your plan against inflation. So how do we think about inflation protection at the portfolio level? Well, when we think about the categories that are direct hedges against inflation, that would be inflation-protected bonds. So treasury inflation-protected securities or TIPS would be one category. I-bonds would be another category. They're relatives. They tend to work in a similar way. Both are bonds, so they issue interest, and they also provide you an inflation adjustment to help you 
keep pace with inflation. So I was talking about how nominal bonds and certainly cash investments are very, very vulnerable to inflation. Tips and I-bonds have a built-in hedge to help you keep pace with inflation. I-bonds have issued uh, very attractive yields. The new I-bonds coming to market have very attractive yields in part because of the inflation adjustment piece. One key thing to keep in mind though is that purchase constraints limit how much people can per- can put into uh, I-bonds. So even though they're, they're a great component of investors' portfolios, you may be curtailed in how much you can put in, how much of your portfolio you can put into them. So you may want to augment that position with a position in treasury inflation protected securities or a fund that invests in them. My preference is for the shorter term tips funds because they tend not to capture a lot of that interest rate related volatility that comes along with intermediate term tips. Stocks are another thing to think about when you're thinking about how to make sure that your portfolio is inflation protected. I want to clarify that stocks are by no means a direct hedge against inflation. So we have a lot of inflation so far in 2022. Stocks are down. So there's not that one-to-one offsetting effect with stocks. But over long periods of time, stocks have tended to out-earn the inflation rate. So they've tended to help you keep pace with or perhaps earn higher returns than the inflation rate. Then a few niche categories that I would mention in the context of inflation, real estate, uh, certainly real estate investment trusts, uh, the Companies that own these properties are typically able to push through rent increases in inflationary periods. And we've certainly seen higher rents come online in many contexts within the real estate space. So real estate is generally considered a decent inflation hedge. That's why I think it makes sense as a component of most investors' portfolios. If you own a total stock market index or something like that, you're probably getting a little bit or you're certainly getting a little bit of real estate equity exposure there. Commodities have performed very, very well in inflationary periods where we've seen them come on strong this year. Whether you want to add to them now, if you haven't had them in your portfolios, I think is an open question because the risk is that if the economy cools, if inflation cools, investors' appetite for commodities could cool as well. And commodities have just been incredibly volatile over time. Bank loan investments, uh, sometimes called floating rate investments, can also be a nice tool to think about adding to your portfolio. They have generally performed reasonably well, certainly better than high quality bonds during this period. High yield bonds are another category to consider as a component of your fixed income portfolio. I wouldn't hold either of these investments as kind of the main course within my fixed income portfolio. I'd, I'd own them as sort of aggressive kickers within my fixed income portfolio. But in general, they will tend to hold up better than high quality bonds in an inflationary environment. Now I want to close by talking a little bit about how to find silver linings in this market. And I think one of the key things you can do is to look at whether you can improve your tax positioning a little bit. So if you have taxable holdings, so if you have holdings in your non-retirement account, you want to look at whether you have any positions that are trading below your cost basis. So they've declined in value since you purchased them. 
If you do, you can sell them and realize a loss. And the value of doing that tax loss selling is that if you realize a loss, you can use those losses to offset capital gains elsewhere in your portfolio. And if you don't have any capital gains, you can use those losses to offset up to $3,000 in ordinary income. So it's a really attractive strategy, especially for newly purchased shares. If you don't need to use your losses or if you're not able to use your losses in this year, in 2022, you'll be able to carry them forward into future years. So you can actually be strategic about this. If this looks like it's not going to be a high tax year, but you expect that 2024 might be, for example, you'll be able to use the tax losses in that year further into the future. So I mentioned that tax loss selling will tend to be the most useful for the recently purchased securities. So if you have securities that have been in your portfolio for a decade or more and you haven't made any recent purchases, you probably have a gain over your time horizon because stocks have performed well, bonds have performed well. But if you've purchased securities recently, so for example, if you've been making regular ongoing purchases, those are the holdings that will tend to be particularly ripe for the picking in terms of tax loss selling. So if you purchase shares in 2021, one, for example, even though it was a great equity market, those shares may have declined in price since your purchase price. So you can use different cost basis elections uh, for categorizing your purchases and sales. The method that you would want to use if you're going to pick off specific shares of your portfolio would be specific share identification. So that means that you effectively cherry pick the downtrodden shares, so the ones that have de depreciated since you purchased them. One thing you want to keep in mind is that if you are a fund holder and you've already used the averaging method for calculating your cost basis, you can't switch into the specific share identification method. So if you've sold securities before and you've used the averaging method, it's not okay to use the specific share identification method later. So check your cost basis elections, check what you have on record with your investment provider, check what you've been doing in the past. One concept that is important to discuss in the context of tax loss selling is what's called the wash sale rule. And that means that if you sell securities within 30, if, if you rebuy securities within 30 days of having sold them, you will essentially negate any tax loss that you have realized. So you want to be careful about that. You want to be careful about selling a security and rebuying exactly the same security or a security that the IRS considers a substantially identical security. So this would be, for example, if you want to sell an index fund, a traditional index fund, and swap into an exchange-traded fund that tracks the same index. That would not fly with respect to the wash sale rule. So keep that in mind as you think about replacing those positions where you've captured the tax loss. Just be mindful of the wash sale rule, that you either need to wait 30 days to purchase exactly the same security, or you need to purchase something that's different, meaningfully different in order for that tax loss to count. 
I also wanted to talk a little bit about IRA conversions. So tax loss selling applies to taxable accounts. IRA conversions applies to your IRAs. And the basic idea with uh, conversion is that you are converting traditional IRA assets to Roth. The benefit of doing that is that Roth IRAs do not have required minimum distributions in contrast with traditional IRAs. And the big benefit of putting money into the, into the Roth IRA column is that the withdrawals, qualified withdrawals from a Roth IRA are tax free. So that's the reason that people like to consider IRA conversions. When you're looking at whether an IRA conversion is beneficial, you want to be thinking about two key things. So first, you want to think about your own tax position. Generally speaking, these conversions are more beneficial in environments in which you expect to be in a low tax year. So you find yourself in a year where you have a lot of deductions, for example. Those can be great years to engineer conversions. Similarly, people in the post-retirement years uh, often find themselves with fairly low incomes relative to what they had when, the, when they were working. Those are good times to consider conversions. So you're thinking about your personal situation, thinking about whether you're in a low tax year, and then you're also thinking about your portfolio and whether your holdings have declined. And I would say that for most of us, our holdings have declined in 2022. So a conversion may be more beneficial in this year where stocks and bonds have sold off than would have been the case in 2021, for example, when everything was way up. So get some tax advice on this. The name of the game, if you are doing IRA conversions, is try to figure out how much you can convert in a given year to avoid pushing yourself into a higher tax bracket. If you're not comfortable running through that calculation, get some advice either from a financial advisor or a tax advisor who can help you decide whether to proceed. A series of conversions will make sense in a lot of situations. So rather than doing one large conversion in a single year, you may find that if you space out conversions, that'll lessen the taxes due on that conversion. So that ends my presentation. I hope this has provided you with some good food for thought as you think about positioning your portfolio at mid-year, thinking about what has gone on in the market over the first half. Thank you so much for watching. I'm Christine Benz for Morningstar.com. We want to remind you to check out part one of your 2022 mid-year portfolio checkup if you missed the episode. This is Investing Insights from Morningstar. We hope you have enjoyed our program and we welcome your feedback. Please send your comments and questions to podcast at Morningstar.com. From everyone here at Morningstar, thanks for listening. This recording is for informational purposes only and should not be considered investment advice. Opinions expressed are as of the date of recording. Such opinions are subject to change. The views and opinions of guests on this program are not necessarily those of Morningstar Inc. and its affiliates. Morningstar and its affiliates are not affiliated with this guest or his or her business affiliates unless otherwise stated. Morningstar does not guarantee the accuracy or the completeness of the data presented herein. The podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be considered tax advice. Please consult a tax and or financial professional for advice specific to your individual circumstances. Morningstar Research Services LLC is a subsidiary of Morningstar Inc. and is registered with and governed by the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission. Morningstar Research Services shall not be responsible for any trading decisions, damages, or other losses resulting from or related to the information, 
data analysis, or opinions or their use. Past performance is not a guarantee of future results. All investments are subject to investment risk, including possible loss of principal. Individuals should seriously consider if an investment is suitable for them by referencing their own financial position, investment objectives, and risk profile before making any investment decision.